Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. In his famous written work consisting of his own confessions, Augustine writes about his own sinfulness before he came to Jesus. One event he notes and feels a strong sense of guilt about, he writes for several sections, is the theft of pears from a pear tree next to the vineyard that his family owned. He and his friends late one night went over and stole pears from this pear tree. And as he recounts the story, they stole them not so they could eat them. They literally stole them so they could run down the road and throw them into the pigs, into a pig pen. Augustine acknowledges in his writing, I sinned just for the sake of sinning. I did it because it was wrong, because it was stealing, because it was evil. It was filthy, and I loved it. And in truth, folks, if we're honest, we can identify with Augustine's confession. We truly do love our sin. That's why it's so hard to stop. That's why it's so hard not to respond in the way that we're going to talk about. He goes on later to describe, there was no pleasure for me in those pairs, none at all. The pleasure was in the evil act itself. Now, we may initially be surprised by Augustine's sensitivity to sin. But don't miss the point That sin is so pervasive in us that we are often sinning even without realizing that we are. David acknowledges this in Psalm 19 and he says, God, forgive me for my hidden sins. Well, what does he mean? It's, It's this reality. I am so sinful that even when I'm just living life day to day, I'm probably sinning and not even realizing it. God, will you forgive me for those sins too? Sin is our, in our every engagement, is in our every engagement, if we're honest, sin oozes out of most of the basic daily actions and interactions and responses of our lives, if we're honest. That's a hard thing to be honest about. It really is. Most of us in this room today do not want to acknowledge how exceedingly sinful we really are. But that is what this passage is conveying to us. The depths of our own sin. And as we walk through this, here's what I want you to note with me today. The depths of human sinfulness is truly alarming. But through Jesus, you can be rescued from the depths of your sin. And folks, that is the only hope you have. This passage, if you read it carefully, it's like a a man drowning in his own sinfulness. And what are you going to do? Well, you need to be rescued. 
You, you can't rescue yourself. You need to be rescued. There, there's no religious activity that you can take part in that's enough to rescue you from sin. You can't confess enough to God or to a priest to be forgiven of your sin. You need help that's outside of you. And that comes through Jesus alone. That's it. Jesus alone is the answer. Now, remember as we walk through this book, the, the theme of this book as a whole of Romans, and, and we won't go into it much, but just remember this as we walk through this book together. Paul is writing to clearly explain the connection of Jesus and the gospel and to defend it. In spite of the rejection of Jesus, who remember, folks, he is the Jewish Messiah, but he's rejected by them. And Paul is then going to call believers to live their lives every single day by the ethical standard that Jesus laid down, that Jesus demonstrated, that Jesus lived throughout his life. So this is a book that is incredibly fascinating. Paul lays out the truths of the gospel and he defends those, but then he calls us to action. Some of the strongest ethical, the way that we treat one another, charges in our whole New Testament come here in Romans, in chapters 12 through 15. So this is an incredibly practical book. And once again, for Paul to get us there, he's got to help us see our need first. And that's the issue here at the end of Romans 1. The depths of our human sinfulness is alarming. But through Jesus, you can be rescued from those depths. Now, remember last week, our text leading into this, Paul's point is the denial of God by refusing to acknowledge him as God and refusing to give him thanks is leading to something. It is producing something. Listen, you can't say, I don't believe God is real. I don't believe he exists. And that not impact the way that you think and the way that you live. And that's exactly Paul's point. That's exactly what Paul's addressing throughout this entire text. So if you remember, because of that denial, people's thinking is off. It's futile. It's broken in a sense. It's darkened. But in their minds, they're wise. Right? Remember that? Remember his description? They're actually broken. Their thinking is, but they think they're wise. And all the while, they are increasingly becoming foolish. It leads to an idolatrous exchange. It's an exchange of the majesty of God for the mundane of humanity and animals. And dare we say creeping things. Folks, bugs. And truthfully, today, we live in a culture where at times animals and even bugs are honored above our creator. It seems crazy. That's what Paul says. That's what it is. So now he's going to go on really today and kind of give us the implications. What we have is almost the rolling effects of this reality of denying God. There are sobering consequences to that. 
And that's what we'll see today. So first, verses 24 and 25, what I want you to note with me is God gives them up to immoral desires. Now, we noted this last week. We'll note it again today probably multiple times. But verse 24, 26, 28, we have the same phrase. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up three times. And in those three occurrences, he tells them what he gave them up to. First, the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So he gives them up to impurity which they're longing for. Then he gives them up to dishonorable passions. And finally, he gives them up to this debased mind. Now, full disclosure. On Tuesday night, we discussed this passage and we kind of jumped ahead in our life group and we were talking about how there's almost like this downward spiral in this text. And what I want you to note with me is I don't think it is moving like stair steps, right? I don't think that's what Paul's describing. What I think Paul's describing is this absolute infiltration into every aspect of our living. So it's almost more like a flower, right? Sin in the middle and every petal coming off of that is something that is broken, our lusts, our passions, our mind. I think that's what Paul is describing. More than he is describing, this happens and then you'll fall into this and then you'll fall into this, like falling down the stairs. That, I don't think that's the image, all right? So the first one that he's going to describe to us is the lusts of our hearts to impurity. And I think what Paul is describing here is just the sinful depravity and the brokenness of mankind that comes out of his impurity or uncleanness. This is uncleanness, impurity of every kind. It's not limiting it to uh, sensuality. It's not limiting it to immorality. This is uncleanness and impurity of every kind, which Paul will get to by the time we get down to verses 28 and 29. He'll begin with immorality first. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with that initially. And don't miss the point. A distorted view of God produces a distorted view of humanity. Folks, listen to me. Part of the struggle with our humanity, part of the wrestling match that is going on even over human sexuality right now is this issue. We've denied who God is. And if you are made in the image of God, then you're going to be confused about who you are if you deny that God exists. You see the connection? That's Paul's point. When we miss that, we are missing the ultimate problem. You can't deny who God is. And expect that not to impact the way that you live, the way that you think, the way that you respond to one another. So this is critical. Paganism is often defined by immorality and idolatry. They are closely linked. And alienation from God brings about this practical, everyday expression Of God's wrath. And folks, listen to me. When we think of God's wrath, we often think of specific judgments. We think of revelation. We think of a white horse. We think of death. Listen carefully to me. Folks, the reality is God's wrath is being poured out right now on sinful people. Do you want to know how? He lets them have what they want. He lets them do what they want. He lets them sin with this 
indiscretion, indiscriminately sinning, which leads to greater sinning and greater consequence and greater outcomes over and over and over. It's just this compounding sinfulness and blindness. But it's what they want. You can't claim freedom from God and then when you get that or live in light of that and all the consequences that accompany it, say, man, I just don't understand why things are so bad. The problem is you've denied God. And as we discussed last week, this isn't just an unbeliever's problem. Oftentimes, believers live day after day, week after week, disconnected from God in an ungodly manner, just simply not acknowledging who he is and how we ought to respond to him and to others because of him. So what results is them dishonoring their bodies among themselves. And this is just talking about destructive and moral perversions, and he'll fill that out more in a minute. But our modern culture is obviously characterized by destructive, immoral perversions of all kinds. And we understand that. And it's fascinating if you consider the result of denying God. It's that God lets you go and gives you the perversion that you long for, separate from him. Verse 25, he goes on, and Paul continues to explain why this happens. Because they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So what's being set in contrast here is the authentic truth of God for the lie. What is the lie? The lie here comes with a definite article, meaning it's not just a lie. It's not just kind of a random, unspecified. No, Paul's saying they believe the lie. Now, there are implications, I think, that Paul is bringing in. One of those is the human tendency, the human longing to replace God with us. I'm in charge. I know best. I know better. Now, now think about this in the garden. What's the temptation? The temptation in the garden is to be like God's. We'll define what's good and what's evil. We'll decide about that independent of God. And folks, listen, whether we like it or not, the truth is we struggle with that. We struggle with that idea. I know best. And sometimes that just comes out in our attempts to control Control relationships, control outcomes, control interact. I just, I just want to be in control of this. Why? Because you think you know best. It causes tremendous anxiety for us at times, right? How is this going to go? How is this going to work? This isn't going to go right. Why? Because I'm not in control of it. When in truth, folks, so much in life you don't truly have any control over. But you do know the one who does. Rest. Rest in his ability, in his capacity, in his power to care for you. That is part of our struggle. 
It's hard to rest in somebody that at times we think in our mind, I wonder if he has my best at heart. He does. Consider Jesus. He does. So rest in him. Let him accomplish his purpose. It goes on in verse 25 and says they worship the creature. This is similar to verse 23, but they worship the creature rather than the creator. And then Paul goes on to give this kind of doxological statement of praise. God, who is the creator and is blessed forevermore. Paul, in a sense, as he is wading through the impact of denying God, he can't help himself in the moment to say, God is majestic and powerful and worthy of our praise, of our worship. Remember, worship is simply the declaration of something or someone's worth. Folks, that's why we sing together. We're just saying together, God is worthy. Jesus is worthy. And that's exactly what Paul does here in the middle of this malu mess as he's explaining it. God alone deserves worship. Paul now transitions to a much more difficult section in some respects, but it demonstrates the depravity of mankind. He goes now, God gave them to their degrading passions. Second, God gave them to their degrading passions. Now we can make a connection here um, from impurity of their hearts and immorality that accompanies or leads to this degrading passions that Paul now describes. And folks, listen, there's no other way to describe this than same-sex passions. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. And I'll be blunt with you today. Paul doesn't mince words, though, listen carefully, this is not a polemic by Paul on 21st century same-sex issues. That's not what he's talking about. I just want us to be clear on that. That's not Paul's point. The irony is how incredibly it connects. Okay? But that's not Paul's point. And and hopefully you'll see that with me in a moment. Paul's point is nature, natural. Look how many times he uses that word or that idea in verses 26 and 27. This is against nature. What's that got to do with anything? creation. God made everything. Stop. When you deny that, you're going to be confused about everything up to your own identity. How much of our culture right now is, what's your identity and how can you figure it out? Listen to me. God already clearly defined that. And if you decide to try and redefine it, certainly that is up to your prerogative. But don't miss this. You're going to be confused. You're going to be miserable at some level to some degree. And there are statistics that back up that reality. Folks who are transgender or identified as homosexual or gay or lesbian, the suicide rates double, triple, quadruple, depending on the stats that you look at. But they are exceedingly greater. Why? Because there is a misery that accompanies undermining what is natural. 
what God designed. And yet, God will allow that. If you, if you want freedom from God, he will give it to you. But the consequences that accompany that are overwhelming. And we see that in verses 26 and 27. So, initially, he describes women exchanging what? Natural relations. Uh, for na- relations that are not uh, natural, uh, they go against nature. It goes against the created order. Natural created plan of God is undermined. So he begins with ladies and kind of leaves it there. But in verse 27, he moves on to men and he addresses this. He kind of gives us four specific descriptions in verse 27 of men. And you cannot deny what Paul is addressing here. We'll talk about that more in a second. But you can't deny what Paul is addressing. You can't deny what Paul is suggesting. Uh, You can't play this off as this was a specific kind of first century perversion that doesn't exist today. Listen carefully to me. No, it wasn't. And you've got to do some really big somersault and jump through some really odd hoops interpretationally to get to that. So much so, at some point, you, you really kind of have to acknowledge Paul's saying what it sounds like he's saying. Paul's addressing what it sounds like he's addressing. Same sex, relationships, passions. That's what Paul is addressing. Look at what he says in verse 27. Four parts to this. First, they, like ladies, they gave up the natural relationships. Now, obviously, what is being talked about here? God's created order in man and woman. Some argue that the Bible isn't that strong against this issue because Jesus himself never said anything specifically about it. Listen carefully to me. Two things. Number one, he didn't have to. Everybody understands. Number two, he absolutely did indirectly. On more than one occasion, the gospel records for us Jesus saying, and God created them male and female. He did right there. He just said it. Jesus just addressed it in that statement. So he absolutely does. He just doesn't go into a lengthy exposition of the Bible's position on this issue of same-sex attraction or relation. He doesn't. Why? No need. Everyone understands. This was clearly accepted among the Jews and believers in the first century. But that doesn't mean these perversions didn't exist. And that's why Paul brings it up. These perversions were reality in the first century, though they were still perversions. Right? So Paul addresses that. Second, they are consumed with passions. Now, they are consumed with these passions. This is an interesting phrase because the idea is this. There's this unrelenting craving in them that will not be satisfied until this longing is fulfilled. So there is something in them that is broken. Now, is it DNA? No, that's not the point. That's not the point. And we know that's not the point. Why? Because it's still not natural. Paul addresses that without addressing it. It's not that this is a nature thing that something got tweaked in the DNA code. No, that's not true. That is not accurate because Paul presents this as what's natural and what isn't natural. What it is is this. It's a perversion that comes from 
the denial, verses 18 to 23, of God. When you deny that there is a God, that he does exist, that he did create the world, it leads to all manner of perversion. And this is part of that. This is an outworking of that denial. That's Paul's point. He goes on, third description. Men committing shameful acts, lewd acts with men. And finally, them receiving the due punishment for their error. Listen carefully. There are consequences now and there are consequences later. Again, I would not recommend you do a search on this. Please don't. But if you were to do any research, and I have a book that addresses this. The title is Snubbing God. It's about the created order. He addresses this topic in that book. One of the chapters, he addresses this. He gives all kinds of statistics in there. And one of those is, is the massive increase among these individuals for sexually transmitted diseases. It's just a reality. Why? Because God did not design this. And when you do things God didn't design, there are natural outcomes that happen. That's it. It's just the way it works. And folks, this isn't God specifically looking at this group and saying, I'm going to get you, you're going to get judged. It's not. Listen carefully to me. It's Galatians 6. God designed his world this way. There are natural outcomes when you sow, you will reap. If you sow to this kind of perversion, you will reap the consequence. It's just the way God designed his world. And he did so in every facet. For those of us that are parents, at times you can see what you're sowing. Right? You come along and you say, Oh boy, I I don't know where that came from. And then I think, oh no, that may have come from me. I think think that might be me coming out. I don't like that. (laughs) You know, wish more mom was coming out in that particular scenario. That's the reality of our sin, folks. It is. It's just the reality of our sin. And that's how it works. He goes on, in some respects then, This illicit action, it was often taken with slaves or boys or prostitutes. The practice of homosexuality, though, in this first century culture, it was often perceived as socially unacceptable and even illegal among free men. And yet, just as today, there was an element within the culture that viewed this as something positive that they longed for, that they desired and indulged in. Even the quote-unquote gods of the people and the emperors. Nero kind of famously tried to draw in free young men to participate in his illicit activities. Nero was a despicable and vile Man, I think most of us comprehend that. And so we understand this this kind of fits. Those degrading, horrific actions have their ultimate demise, even in the breakdown of somebody's thinking. Now, one issue that I want to briefly address before we move past is there is an element within Christianity called, that takes a 
progressive Christian view on this subject. Um, That maybe this is okay. Multiple books have been written on this subject. Um, I will not give you those books. Um, I'll give you others, but I won't give you those. Um, And I bring that up because a very, very well-known church in our community, the pastor preached a 70-minute sermon on this, addressing texts like Romans 1, texts in Leviticus, 1 Corinthians, and suggesting through each of those texts why they don't mean what they say from this progressive view. And so what I want you to understand is twofold. Number one, I want you to understand you might run into a believer that thinks that this really is okay. And hopefully your response is to be mature. I'm not telling you that so that you try and argue. All right, please don't do that. But I also want to offer you the assurance that the Bible is crystal clear on this. In truth, as I walked through this this week, and it felt like walking through a bit of a mire uh, to figure some of this out. But the truth is, Paul's attitude towards this kind of same-sex behavior, it could not be more clear. It it can't be. You, You cannot deny what Paul is addressing You cannot deny the condemnation that Paul is offering. And folks, listen to me. This is not a condemnation because I don't like somebody or they're different than me. Listen carefully. This is a condemnation because at its core, it's a denial. Listen carefully. It's a denial of God as creator. You are undermining God as creator and designer. And you're believing the lie. What's the lie? I know better. I understand better than he does. I understand better what's good, acceptable, and okay, right, than he does. I understand better what's evil and what's not. Listen to me, you don't, and neither do I. And I would be careful not to suggest that I did. That is the issue with this. And we need to comprehend that. Ultimately, this is an attack on God's ordered, created world. It's an attack on his design. And listen very, very carefully. When you attack God's created design, there is judgment quick on the heels of that. Sodom and Gomorrah are used as an example throughout Scripture. Why? Because that judgment from God came because of this issue. That undoing of God's design is serious. It is serious. And it ought to sober us. Not make us mean. Sober us. We need to be careful about our response to this issue in two ways. Number one, for some of us, for some of you, this is so off-putting to you that it's hard for you not to respond in a sinful way to somebody who is like this. And and what we need to remember is the way that Jesus responded to sinners. There was a compassion. There there was a mercy. uh, There was a care. And that ought to characterize our response. The second response, though, the second really 
danger to me is that in our culture that is increasingly grappling and actually demanding acceptance of this, that we become callous. That we say, you know what, maybe I just don't understand something. Maybe, maybe I really am antiquated. Maybe God's word is antiquated. And, and we need to kind of modernize our thinking about it. Listen carefully to me. What we're being asked to do in the sense of modernizing our thinking is exactly verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Please don't be foolish by becoming callous to this issue. If you engage in entertainment at all, there is an overabundance of characters that align with this lifestyle. It is out of balance, and it's out of balance on purpose. Two statistics shocked me as I, I read part of that book. Uh, of the coverage of this issue, 500% of it is positive. 500% from the media. And the second thing that alarmed me was the amount of characters that show up. If you watch any television show now, somebody in that show aligns with this. And folks, do you understand in our minds increasingly, it's everywhere. It's everyone. And to be frank, at least in 2016, this characterized 2% of the population. 2%. 2%. That means those that aren't are in a massive majority. Now, that may have radically changed. But those that aren't are still in a massive majority. This is not the norm. And we need to be careful we don't become callous to that. Paul moves on. The third one, God gave them up to their own depraved minds. Uh, he's given them up to a debased thinking or base thinking. Uh, Paul gives here a vice list, and there are many vice lists in the New Testament, and there's a lot of discussion in New Testament studies as to where they come from and why. Actually, there, is a, uh, there are writings from this period that have vice lists, secular vice lists. They would characterize the vices of humanity, and there were even stylistic elements. Often they were put in groups of four. In some respects, Paul kind of does that for us here. He begins with four and ends with four. But the list itself is composed of 21 sins. We're not going to go through and list the specifics of every single one of them. But I want you to see kind of the character throughout. The first set of four is kind of a general expression of sinfulness. Unrighteousness is just a general word for our sin against each other. Evil is wickedness. Covetousness is greediness. Malice is ill will towards another. That's not to characterize believers for sure. Uh, and it is characteristic of unbelievers. The second group, five, address cruelty or mistreatment of others. Env envy, which is jealousy that is aggressively seeking to do somebody else harm. Murder, I think we understand, right? Uh, strife is contention. You ever engage somebody and they're just contentious? You could say, man, it's a beautiful day. The sky is so blue. And they'd say, it's light blue, right? It's not blue. It's actually, and you're like, okay, fine. It's not a nice day. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, th- th- this is strife, you know, they just, some people just live for that, you know. Deceit, taking advantage through craft or underhandedness. Maliciousness is just meanness. You ever interact with somebody that's just mean? They just, they just, they just enjoy hurting people around them. He gives us eight more in the middle there, and I think they're in groups of two. The first two are gossips, which we understand, rumor, secret slander, or slanderers. This is an open uh, spoken word of evil against somebody. Together, its uh, purpose is to destroy the reputation of somebody else. The next two, haters of God and insolent. Haters of God, they're treating God with contempt. Insolent, they're treating others with contempt. Uh, It is contempt for God and other people, which he begins with, if you remember in verse 18, ungodliness and unrighteousness, our ungodliness is towards God, our unrighteousness is towards each other. The third set of two, haughty and boastful. Haughty is just proud, it's just arrogant. We have a tendency to be that, don't we? And boastful. The man who tries to impress everybody by making significant claims. And I don't know if you've ever been around one of these people, but every single thing they've done was bigger and better and more amazing and more expensive than what you've done, right? And after a while, you think, I'd like to go home. You know, I just want to be done with this individual. The last set of two inventors of evil and disobedient to parents. Inventors of evil is somebody who's stirring up trouble. Could be politically, it could be just within the community. Second is disobedient to parents. Dishonoring, disobeying parents. Both contribute to the destruction of community. I thought that was fascinating. I thought that was fascinating. Inventors of evil and disobedient to parents. And what I want to suggest to you, listen carefully to me, especially those of you with young ones, with young kids, listen carefully. Disobedient to parents is as much on you, mom and dad, as it is on your child. If you don't hold their feet to the fire, they're not going to. At at one, at three months, at 12 months, at 22 months, at 28 months, they still need to be trained to obey. Mom and dad, that's on you. You've got to do that. They do not come into this world thinking in their mind, I I want to obey my mom and dad. I love them. No, they don't. They come into this world thinking, I need something, and that big person keeps showing up. So I hope they're going to give it to me. And they didn't just now. Ah! And all of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And the problem is, is when that ah at one and a half, it's kind of cute. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, aren't they cute? When they're 12 and they're doing that, that's not cute. Right? That's terrifying. And, and we've all witnessed it. We've all been in the store and witnessed some child and we're thinking in our minds, the only good news is I'm not taking them home. Yeah, you know? But they are, you know, you, you have a lot of adjectives in your mind or descriptions. and We, we won't say them, but you know. Parents, that's on you. You better make a decision right now. God calls you to discipline your child. We live in a culture where, no, 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 don't you dare discipline that child. Folks, let me tell you, you will rue the day if you don't. You will rue the day if you do not. 
So that is your responsibility, mom and dad. Discipline your child. Direct. Guide their hearts. Train them. Disciple them. But that's going to take some discipline. And, and I don't hear any of you calling out amen. That's okay. It still, it still had to be said. All right? All right, last set. Last set uh, he gives to us, the last description, is four words that we lack, actually. They all kind of begin, sound the same way. And he gives them to us in verse 31. Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And the idea of foolish is without understanding, faithless without faith, heartless without affection, or without a positive feeling toward others, and ruthless is without mercy. And what that means is, it's somebody who isn't concerned about the needs of others. Listen carefully to me. If you interact with somebody who doesn't have empathy, that is a scary thing. Whether they are a leader in your company, or your neighborhood, or the government, if they lack Empathy, that is sobering and it demonstrates their sinfulness. Paul goes on and he concludes in verse 32. And collectively this list demonstrates the absolute and total corruption of humanity, of you and of me. We have to be able to admit that today. I am broken I am sinful. I have trespassed against God. That is true. So how do we respond? He goes on and he concludes, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. That's the judgment. That's the verdict. It's already in. If you practice these things, if you've ever practiced them, if you've ever committed one of them one time, there's the decision. You deserve death. And that death, I don't think is specifically here physical or spiritual. I think it's just a general uh, idea that there is this enormous consequence for sin. And it is death. He goes on in the end and he says, they not only do these things, but they give approval to those who practice them. And if you think about this for a moment, what he is suggesting is not only do we participate in these, listen, we cultivate them in others. By our acceptance, by our responses, we cultivate the sinful practices in those around us. We honor them, we endorse them by our responses. Now, as I suggested to you last week, we need to be careful as we walk through this and not forget that your sinfulness is yours. It's not somebody else's fault. We live in a day where what I'm experiencing really is not my fault. And therefore, my sinfulness is not my fault. Somebody was mean to me. Something happened to me. Somebody took advantage of me. I get that. But folks, listen to me. You sin today because you are a sinner. That does not excuse wrongs that other people have done to you. What it does is validate Paul's list. 
So all of that is horrific news, right? It, it is. But fortunately for us, the story doesn't end there. That's part of the good news. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus can take our sin and free us from bondage. By the time we get into chapter 6, Paul is going to say to us, listen, stop, stop giving your members to sin. Stop, stop yielding your members to sinfulness and yield them to God. You can't say that if it's not possible. It's possible for you as a believer to yield your members to God. And that's the call. And that good news, the gospel is available and possible through Jesus. The depths of human sinfulness, it truly is alarming. But through Jesus, you can be rescued from those depths of sin. Have you been rescued today? Have you been rescued today? If not, you can be. If you have been, let's celebrate that rescue today.